My guest tonight was an original writer for Saturday Night Live, a short filmmaker with over 50 to his credit, and is known for directing one of the most famous movies you've never seen. He was also a protege of documentarian Robert Snyder and was befriended and mentored by Henry Miller. In 2000, I honor to have on the phone Tom Schiller. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi. Thank you very much. Now, the question I usually ask to my guests is where were you born and approximately when? But that's a very easy question for you since your father was a very famous television writer. So I was—I always ask, like, what were the first show, television shows you, you watched as a kid? Okay. So I grew up in L.A. because my dad worked in Hollywood, obviously. And um, actually, I grew up in Ricardo Montalban's house, which my parents purchased hmm. many years ago. I had a lot of rich currency and leather. <laughs> and when I was about seven or something, and it was a weeknight, a school night. My parents would awaken me in the middle of the night, very late, to come and watch in case a sketch was going well on your show of shows. Mm. So I was the only kid that got awakened at night to watch television. It was a pretty good, good deal. Yeah, and then you worked in that theater. The Center Theater in New York? Oh, I thought they taped that show in um, 30 Rock. Your show of shows. I don't know where. I think the Center Theater. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. They could have moved or done something in the other place. Yeah. Oh. Okay. And your father was was working from radio days writing scripts, correct? Yeah. He started in um, uh, Archie Bunker's, not Archie Bunker, Duffy's Tavern. Right. On TV with his partner, Bob Weisskopf. Right. And he was with Bob Weisskopf for about 50 years writing every television show from I Love Lucy to Archie Bunker's Place and Maud. So comedy, did you were influenced by the comedy that you watched as, as a child? I couldn't help it. Right. And you were also able to get to equipment, like the camera equipment that you got. That well, you meet. That, that was in the family. My grandfather had a 16-millimeter Filmo, D&H Filmo. Okay. Uh, and it was, I used to go out with my friend, uh, Jeff Benjamin, who would make short films. I saw one of them, Doors. That's right, The Door. It's because my mom, who was also a brilliant and funny person, told me that at UCLA Film School, which I grew up right next to, one of their exercises was to take all sorts of feet running and edit them in the right position to make it make sense. Okay. So that's how I shot the door. Oh. And how does somebody become a uh, a protege of a documentarian while they're still in high school? Well, as I said, I worked for this guy, Bob Snyder, who was a wonderful character who had studied under Robert Flaherty, the father of the documentary film. And he, his subject matters were always interesting, like Buckminster Fuller and uh, Anais Nin. And by then, I was learning camera sound and editing. And we were asked to go over and film this guy, Henry Miller, who also lived in the Palisades, where I was living at the time. So I ran sound on him in the swimming pool 
was making a reminiscence of the heat. I talked to him afterwards, and he says, you know, Tom, you remind me of myself when I was your age. I want to talk to you. Come over. Wake me up. Anytime. Come on over. So I took him up on it, and I was friends, pals with him for about um, nine years. I saw today um, Henry Miller is sleeping awake. Oh, really? Yeah. It's really good. I really like it. He comes off, he looks like George Raft a little, and sounds like George Raft a little. <laughs> That's right, he does. He's a real Brooklyn guy. Now, does your bathroom have a whole bunch of pictures and photographs on the wall? No. Just wondering. Okay. So, your father goes to work on a show called The Beautiful Phyllis Diller Show. Mm-hmm. And he meets a young Canadian writer named Lauren Michaels. And he thinks you two should get together. Yeah, because I think he wants me to go work on something. Because I was doing nothing after returning from living in London for one year. So one day I came over to the house, and there was this guy, Lorne Michaels, with his friend John Head. Mm-hmm. He seemed, seemed like a nice enough guy, easy to talk to, a little nebbish maybe. Uh, and uh, he, we became pals. Oh, he, he lit up a joint at my father's house, which I'd never do it. Right. But, but I was shocked and surprised. And it led to our friendship, and I used to go hang out with him at the Chateau Marmont. Right. That's, he had a birthday party there, and I read. It's yeah, 30th what? birthday. It's 30th birthday party he had at the Chateau Marmont. That's right. Now, all sorts of colorful characters, who I forget their names, but some became part of Saturday Night Live. Right. Um, so, how did you become part of Saturday, Saturday Night Live? I slept with a producer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, well, as I, you just said, my father was a friend of Lorne, and he came over, and then I became friends with him with Lauren, and he kept talking about this late-night comedy show he wanted to do. And I, I couldn't, wasn't into it, because I thought I was going to be a great foreign film director after seeing Fellini's work. But mm-hmm. Lauren kept talking, like, nonstop, over and over about this show. And, I, you know, I couldn't stand it. And I asked my friend Henry Miller, should I go work on this a comedy show in New York. He says, no, Tom, no. It'll kill your soul on <laughs> television. And so I was torn. I, I didn't know what to do. But at that time, I was a kind of a snob, I guess, about L.A. I didn't think it was very creative or anything. I hated it, and I wanted to get out of there. So I accepted the job on the thing that maybe I would get to do films. And so I said yes to Lauren. I was the first person hired, actually. Yes. And on the first episode, a piece that you wrote, a commercial parody called Try Opening, aired. Did you Did you direct it? No. They did pre-tapes in the studio, like just before the first show. Okay. And, uh, yes, I, I had juvenile arthritis for a little bit. It's gone, oh. thank God. Mm. I used to have to try to open these bottles, you know, of cortisone or whatever they were, right. and it was very painful. So I decided to do a thing called try open and, and they used Chevy's fingers to do it. And he 
what's funny on that episode is that they have a commercial for a triple track, a razor, a three-headed razor, and now they're up to four or five blades. Yeah, now they have like six blades, and that's nothing. But at those those days, that was whoa, that was really a lot of blades. Right. <laughs> I noticed that when they needed somebody to play somebody that wasn't American, they used you a lot. Yeah, I was like... Or a priest. Huh? Or a priest. That's right. I was like like the number one extra they would turn to, which is the most fun job, because you don't have to be a principal in front of camera. You could just be a character right there on camera, too. Right. I want to ask you about a sketch, because I, re- I read the book, uh, Nothing Lasts Forever, that was yeah. written about the film. Yeah. And I remembered when I when I read a, about a scene i remember the sketch because i have like this memory if i hear something i'll remember it forever um on the candace bargain christmas show in the first season there was a sketch called the fritzy kringle show where lorraine newman w- was playing a swedish chef oh. a- and she closed the show with snip snap snorm hey cocolorum yeah right and i was like holy cow that's the same when I read that in the book, I was like, well, that's the same thing that Lorraine Newman said in that sketch seven years earlier. That's right. And I was like, oh, he had that in his mind to use for something else. I did, and it was because I lived in Copenhagen for a year, and that was a lovely nonsense line. I think it was Swedish. But, mm. uh, yeah, I put that in my movie, too. Yeah. And you did the Patty Hearst drawings. Yeah, that was the most fun to do the artist's renderings. Right. Really stupid line drawings, supposedly done by the courtroom artist. I read that Chevy has one framed. Yes, he did. He, 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 ha- he took my best one. I wish I had it back. Oh. And then you played Henri in Citizen Kane 2. Yes, this is when I had lines and I was terrified. And I kept writing them on my hand, or I kept writing them on little pieces of paper, like Marlon Brando. And mm. I was terrified, you know, you backstage. And finally, I went out and said the lines in a very light voice. <laughs> so it, it was scary. I'm sure. Because you, you never wanted to be an actor. Excuse me, no. Also, you are you clip this tiny microphone on your chest, you mm. know, on the shirt and you look down at this microphone and you know that 300 million people are listening to you through that little mic Mm. and it's very frightening and then in february of the first season desi arnaz hosted and he brought desi arnaz jr on with him and you got to play desi a young desi arnaz in a parody of i love lucy where it was i love desi birthright <laughs> imitate him but but that was fun i liked doing it and i of course i knew desi jr from growing up on the set of, of i love lucy so that was fun mm. and he wrote an ingmar bergman parody for the louise lasser show yes that was also fun because i got to do fake swedish and play deaf hey that sounds like a lot of fun and then um, you, in the second season, you were a 
you played uh, Dean Slidell, who was about to be uh, electrocuted, and they're yeah. doing the dress rehearsal. That's right. Um, did you write that sketch? Pardon me. Did you write? Did you write that sketch? No, I think maybe Danny did. Okay. And then your in the third season, your first film aired, Ask the Generation. Where are they now? Yes, so that was my best first one. And that, I, went, I had an idea of, like, what, what what we look like when we're in our, right, and actually nowadays, in our 70s. Right. What did all these hippies, what were they going to be like? So I went to this old folks home, this Jewish old folks home in Venice, California. And I wrote these lines on big cards, and I said, you want to make $25? Just read these. And we filmed them. And it came out great. But I don't think it would be that funny anymore, because we actually do look that old and <laughs> decrepit. When I first saw it, I thought it was supposed to be that that's how they looked like only 10 years later. <laughs> that's what when I was 11. I didn't get it. And then you did uh, a, one life after death. Yes, this was uh, at the time there were all kind of books about reincarnation and what happens when you die and stuff like that. So I thought it would be funny if that when you died you go to a big waiting room and take a number and sit down. Right. And then the people just repeat that line over and over. That's right. Um, there's a sketch I wanted to ask you about because it kind of fits in with, with your style of movies, but it's a live sketch. Um, in the third season, there was a sketch called Married in a Minute with um, Mary Kay Place. Mm -hmm. It was a parody of a certain genre of film, and it, it seemed like something you would have wrote. Was that yours? Uh, I don't know. It wasn't. Oh, okay. It just... Because it was a, a sty you know, style, genre, parody of, of, of movies of the 30s and 40s and 50s. I remember the title, but I don't remember writing it. And anyway, I'm the best person for making things look like the 40s and 30s and stuff like that. Right. You may say so. Yeah. And you got to play a, a Jew Jewish warrior in um, this is the Tale of Hanukkah. What was that one? Um, it was the the Farbers, the characters that um, Belushi. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. And they did the Mac. You were a Maccabee. No, that's Hanukkah Harry. Oh, sorry, I don't know which one you mean. Oh no, this was um, it was Gilda and Belushi, and they were playing the Farbers, the Jewish couple that they played, and that somebody was asking them what did Hanukkah mean, and they went back and they told the story of the Maccabees. Oh, I and forgot that. One. That that's okay. But that was also the episode where they did Bad Musical, the Anton von Leeuwenhoek story. That's right. That's one of I have. Um, that's one of my two favorite uh, bad uh, vehicles. I like the songs in there. Which one was it? Uh, Lou and Hook. Oh, yeah, that's the first one. Yes. Yeah, when I was like in junior high, we re wrote, uh, rather read The Microbe Hunter by Paul DeCreef. You know who that is? That's a, I don't know. Anyway, he, 
he spoke about Leeuwenhoek, and it always stuck with me, like who this guy was, who really did invent the microscope. Mm. And that was really lots of fun. And also, I love Eugene Lee, who designed a set who came from Broadway, who did really a good set. He knew he knew the, uh, the Broadway or show look for a set, and I loved it. And it was done very well. Mm. As um, And then... Later on in the third season, Don't Look Back in Anger, it's probably your most famous uh, film. Yeah. Aired in March. Most famous, but <clears throat> so I thought, like, who who represents Saturday Night Live? What cast member is the most iconic? And I thought, well, John Belushi. Uh, he stood out to me. Not Chevy Chase, I don't think, but John was. And I thought, well, what if he outlived everybody and went back to the cemetery and visited the graves? Right. And, uh, you know, the day we were going to shoot that, he had been partying all night long the night before. And we got a van with a little bed in the back so he could lie down. Mm. And when we drove out to the cemetery, he fell asleep as the van was swerving and hitting potholes and junk like that. And he just he slept like a baby. He could do that. Yeah, I read that he he could fall asleep anywhere. Yeah, he was one of those kind of people. And then you did a sketch which I didn't know you wrote until I read the book, but it was always one of my favorites. Was the uh, Tomb of Morton Cayman? Oh, thank you. I know I like it too. About a Jewish couple in Palm Springs who left the air conditioning so on so low that they died but were preserved perfectly and they go in and find the artifacts like a tuna noodle casserole machine and Gucci shoes and I didn't know it was Belushi's voice saying Morton and Shirley are not at home right now but if you leave a message on the beep tone is that John? that's it. That's what it's listed as it says now I remember it, it was his his Jewish voice it was pretty good. Yeah, he could do a lot of good stuff. Yeah, that's why he's John Belushi. Yeah, right. Or he isn't John what, Belushi. Was. Yeah. And then La Dolce Gilda, another famous... Um, this is my... One of my top ones, which I love. Mm. And that, after the show, they piled into a Cadillac in costume and drove down to this place called One Fifth Avenue which is where we had our parties after the show. And I gave them their lines on uh, on cards. And they went in and we just did it on the seat of our pants and shot it, this and that. And then we had to wait up all night so that we could get the look of Gilda at dawn on the West Side Highway, mm. which still existed. And we waited all night for the light to be perfect. And we shot her ending and I felt horrible because I realized I could have faked it at dusk right. no one would have known the difference and then we wouldn't have to stay up that late yeah it was hard those weeks sound like excruciatingly, excruciatingly hard very much so and that week off sounded like it was it a, a true week off or did you guys have to come in and I think it was a true week off that's good and people traveled or else they just crashed. 
I think Franken and Davis went to the app to Easter Island once. That's where the Conehead idea came from. Oh, is it? I, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, I think um, Ackroyd went with them, and him and Tom Davis came up with the Conehead. I'm, I'm just going by books. You were there. So. I don't, yeah, that makes sense, though. Um, another um, Schiller, not Schiller Vision, but Schiller's Real, that was really funny. It was Arrivederci Roman. Oh, yeah. Um, I had, I was in Rome. I tried to, whenever I traveled, I tried to make a short film because mm. a different background. In Rome, I was where I met Fellini, which I'll tell you in a little while, but this one was just about a couple who they're going around Rome in their home movie and he's having lunch and has a heart attack in the spaghetti mm. and afterwards she gets in love with the paparazzi who had been following them all along but incidentally while I was in Rome <clears throat> I went and knocked on the door of Chinichita where Fellini was making a movie Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm a friend of Paul Mazursky and Henry Miller. Can I come in? And they ushered me in, and I met him. And it was, oh, he was my number one hero. I mm-hmm. love him. And I said, I made a film uh, called La Dolce Gilda in your honor. And he said, oh, we must arrange a screening. And they did arrange a screening, and he liked it very much. That's good. That's got to be big accolade. Oh, man, it was great. And then, uh, perchance to dream, uh, mm-hmm. Bill Murray, the honker character, and he's doing Shakespeare. Right. I thought, like, I guess, like, <clears throat> he can take that character and then become very articulate and a Shakespearean actor. And he, that's the whole thing on that one. Right. And Clones Ex- Exist Now was on the last episode of the fourth season. Not only a great one, but it, it the idea was of cloning was are talking about at that time too. Right. And so I took some friends and pretended their kid was a clone. Mm. Okay. And uh, was did the censors ever give you a problem with that line um, where children can play with themselves and others? <laughs> no, they didn't catch that one. Uh, okay. But. During the show, I was supposed to say what a golden shower was. I was I was elected to go tell the censor what it was, not what it really is. And I was terrified, but I went up to this woman who looked like Margaret Dumont. And right. She, I said, a golden shower is what hippies do in the early morning, and that is take a shower in the early rays of the sun. And, I, and she said, I don't think so, Tom. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's actually in one of the books. Uh, her name, Jane Crowley. That's right. She was this foreboding, huge, matronly character that I, I've never met a censor before, but right. she was. And in the fifth season, they bumped you up to um, a, a uh, featured player. You know, I'm not aware of that. I look in 
reading all the books and it says I was a featured player and all that stuff. For technically, technically for one episode, the Strother Martin episode. Yes, and which is weird because you have other sketches that season that you're in much more. Yeah, that's what I figured. You, okay, so you play the uh, assassinated president of Korea. So there they're using you for somebody who's not American. Yeah, this stuff wouldn't fly today. No. Uh, Los Beatolos Cubanos, the Cuban Beatles. Oh, yeah, with my friend Peter Ackroyd, Danny's brother. Yes. Uh a Frenchman in Le Choux. A Jim Signorelli fake commercial. And then, of course, when um, you mentioned Peter Aykroyd, uh, Java Junkie. Yes. Now, I think he is the greatest actor. I mean, he, he was, there was something great about him. I think he should have done more. Mm. And he really had that look, a 1940s look of a leading man, you know? Right. And that, that was so easy to do with him. He knew right what to do. But Java Junkie, that, the, the big joke in that one is that he ended up in Maxwell House. Right. Which is a funny joke. And you you had Terry Garr in it. That's right. And the she's... Wait, waitress. And then she hosted the next episode. Oh, did she? Which is weird. So it's like they put that, they made that, and and then she hosted the next one in January of eighty. So I was, I don't remember. No, but you wrote a Nick the Lounge Singer sketch. I did. That's it. In it says you did in in the book about you. Oh yeah. Where it was about he was doing a bar mitzvah. Yes, with Kirk Douglas. Okay. Yeah, I got to play my Jewish rabbi guy. And um, that was fun and scary. This is when all of the cast members were leaving to go do movies. Right. So they used more of the writers to fill in for them. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was afterwards, I mean, I was on the set. And Kirk Douglas said, you're, fr- you're a funny guy. If you have any material, send it to me. <laughs> I always thought it was weird when I watched that sketch because they're laughing at you speak just speaking Hebrew. Who is laughing? The audience. I, I mean, I guess you. I I don't know because you're like Nachas and you you just you're not saying anything. You're just giving a speech and they're laughing at like I guess how Hebrew sounds. <laughs> That's fun for me. Right. And, uh, yeah, so the episode that you were credited as a cast member, you appeared in, it was Strother Martin, and you appeared in the French camp parody of Cool Hand Luke. God, I don't remember that. And in a video will sketch as one half of the musical team of Juan and Juan, and the other one was Paul Schaefer. And that, and that's when you were credited as a cast member for that one episode. Like that. Yeah. Oh well. Uh, well, yeah. And then. Seventy years 
No, I'm sorry. No. Um, so then everybody left at the end of the fifth season. That's right. We all left. And yeah, Buck said goodnight and goodbye. That's right. And then when it didn't work, season six with Gene Domanian, uh, they brought in Dick Abersole and he, I guess he invited everybody from the original cast back if they wanted to, to do something. Oh yeah. I'm not aware of that. Oh, cause I was wondering how art is physical got on in the seventh season. Oh yeah. Art is official. Um, I didn't think he just asked if I wanted to make a movie. And so I did. It was something I had shot in France with my friend Hans and <clears throat> Even I didn't understand it. Okay. And then, for some reason, in one episode in 1982, you came on playing the guitar. Oh, yeah. For what? I mean, I, a couple of times. In Weekend Update? What? I think it was Weekend Update. Oh, yeah. I don't remember half the context, but I, I often did with Neil Levy. He used to come on with guitar, too. Right. Um, you were in Mr. Mike's Mondo video. I don't think I was in it, but I supplied a piece of stock footage. Oh, okay. It's called Uncle Cy and the Sirens. It's this 1920s thing about a man who gets his first television, mm-hmm. and he's dialing it and everything. And finally, he gets nudes, like Hawaiian luau girl nudes. And it's his wife comes in and bonks him over the head. So, Lauren gets to deal with Paramount. Mm-hmm. And they want to make the Saturday Night Live movie. Yeah. Was it Paramount or MGM? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it was, you're right. It's MGM because that's what you made Nothing Lasts Forever for. Right. How long did it take you that to write that script? Um, it was like eighty eight wow. like a like a few months. I don't remember. I would take a legal pad and sit outside in a cafe and just write, which may have been the reason why it was never distributed. I mean, everybody I've who I've heard saw it loved liked it. I mean, in the book it says that people in the business, you know, I read about the screenings, but a guy wrote a book about how much you liked the book movie. I mean, yeah, um, I thought it was going to be I was going to be the next Fellini, you know, for the American Fellini. Mm. And in fact, while I was still cutting it, I I heard that the guy from Cannes Film Festival was in New York, so I secreted a print over to him, and I got a phone call, and he said. You have made a masterpiece. <laughs> and he gave me champagne at the Algonquin Hotel in the lobby there, and he said it will be the sensation of the festival. So I, my head was swimming. Right. But, but they said, no, you can't go. And I went and asked the president of MGM. I said, why, why can't I send my film? He said, you can get hurt, baby, as you can. Get, get hurt. And I said, well, give me the name of a film that was hurt at Cannes. He said, I could give you a list of 50 on your desk by tomorrow. The list never appeared, and I, my film still didn't go. 
Yeah, and then they ask you the next year. That's right, two years in a row. So instead it showed around the film festivals all over the country, and it still shows on midnight showings in Europe on late night television, which is basically what the film was made for Dutch Insomniac. Mm. And that's who wrote the book. A Dutch Insomniac, yeah. Michael Streeter. Yeah. Yes, he saw it in, in New York, in uh, Holland. And then when he came to New York, he figured out that I was the writer on Saturday night, so he wrote a nice book. Yeah. I always wanted to see, because um, I was telling, I had um, Lane Saracen on. Sure, Lane, good guy. Yeah, and I told him that when I was 13, I got a, uh, for my bar mitzvah, I, I got a VCR. Uh-huh. And I, w- I went to the library because it's the only thing, you know, there's no internet in 1990. And, but they had this thing, they had the, this periodical, it's everything, it's every movie ever made by every actor. Uh-huh. So I looked up Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Chevy G, the original cast. And I was going to see every movie that the, uh-huh. that they did. And I looked up Dan Aykroyd. I even saw this movie he did where he's blind. Love at first sight. Uh-huh. And it was a Canadian low-budget movie. And I found it. Really? But the one I couldn't find was Nothing Less Forever. Yeah, it's mysteriously missing. But you, if you look hard enough or go, go through weird channels, you can find it, which I kind of like. Oh, okay, so you mean on the internet? Yeah, but some of those things, I think they're they're bad links, and you get it's not good for your computer. No, I know. Right. But now that everything you could stream everything is, and if you get any word about what the film, yeah, no. I used to get all kinds of offers, you know, like from Rhino Pictures and uh, the Warner Archives and stuff like that, but. It sort of faded away, yeah. and it's too heartbreaking to have to pursue something like this. Yeah. So I let it go. I guess that's a good. That's the best thing you could do. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know this, but I have every episode of the new show, mm-hmm. and I didn't know you directed the Joy Behar films. Oh yeah, I did three of those actually. That was way before anyone knew her. She was a stand-up. No, I know. she's, And then I, I wanted to see how old she was, and she was in her 20s. That's right. Pretty young. Yeah. And I, I was like, oh, okay. Because I, like, I was wondering, why didn't you join the new show when Lauren did that? And you did, in a way. I think I did work on that. Yeah. And that was what I contributed. Yes. And then you did... Uh, um, a couple of cable, Cinemax cable experiments, comedy yeah. experiments, yeah. Mm-hmm. From here to maternity. Yeah, these were my lesser works, I would say. But you were you were always able to get a good cast. Yeah, because I knew all these people. For I met everyone in the world when I worked at Saturday Night, and became friends with a lot of them. So it wasn't hard to find people. Mm. It was just um, the material wasn't up up high. Right. And you made a cameo in the film Perfect with John Travolta? Yeah, that was the strangest thing. Um, Somehow, I guess the producer knew me from around Saturday Night Live. And so I was a 
an extra or had a small bit part on it, but I'm, it's always listed as one of my credits, which I find is funny. Yeah, I saw that. I was like, he was in that movie? I know. It's, it's odd when you're in a strange movie. And then you work for Not Necessarily the News. Yes. That's when I came back to L.A. in that period after for the first five years of Saturday night. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and... I think Lane Sarason was there too. Yeah, I've introduced I've interviewed Lane Sarason, Larry Arnstein, and Matt Newman. And Matt Newman. Matt Newman was my first one. They were great guys. I lo- I loved them. And the, uh, it was a weird show because all it was was a weekend update. You just came to work and did weekend update jo- jokes. Mm. But um I don't think I lasted very long there. It says the 86-87 season, so. Excuse me? It says the 86-87 season. I see. Uh, Conan O'Brien was a, was a writer that year. Oh, was he? I don't remember him being there. Well, he was just out of Harvard. I see. Now, I interviewed the other, uh, last week, uh, Tom Kramer. He did the short films for Fridays. Mm-hmm. And he basically went... Was telling a story. He wanted to do the short films for for Saturday Live, obviously, but you were there, so he went to Fridays. Oh, I don't know. No, I'm. Uh, this is what he was telling me. Oh, I that, see. Like you're his idol. Oh, really? Yeah. At least I have two. <laughs> and uh, like he would he would look for extras the same way you would look for extras. How do I look for extras? You know what I read is that you look for offbeat-looking people, people that would fit in that area in that time period. Oh, that's right, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And he would put his uh, he would he, he used elderly people a lot, and his his uh, who's he saying his um he did a, he did a film with George Carlin where it was where George Carlin gets his material from, and it was basically. Like, just these random people with random observations, and then George Carlin would write them down, and they'd be his observations. I see. And he, and he took, like, his, um, the people who rented him his apartment, and they were, like, in their 60s. So he did stuff like that. Oh, that's good. Um, what was the right school for Elizabeth? Pardon me? The right school for Elizabeth. I don't know. It was on. It was on your. Uh... The right school for Elizabeth. I don't recall that. Okay. So you came back to Saturday Night Live in 1988. Right. And what's funny is season 14 that year, probably the best or funniest season in my opinion mm-hmm. of the show. Yeah. Because season four, you had the Zappa and the Milton Berle show. Yeah. But season 14, there was not a bad show at all. And um, you did Love is a Dream, which is another very famous piece, unfortunately. It's good. It's good. It's very good. It is another unfortunate piece. And I tell people, if you want to live, don't let me make a short film about you. Right. It's like Mike Mike Myers and Bill Murray are the exceptions that prove the rule. How do you know they're not walking dead? (laughs) Oh, I didn't. You're right. Zombieland. No, uh, Love is a Dream was wonderful because 
you know, at NBC and 30 Rockefeller Plaza, they had a music department you could go up into, mm. and no one was there. It was from the 20s and 30s with these gigantic turntables that they used to use, you know, in the 30s, right. radio stations, and all sorts of 78s, which they later threw out. But I was listening to all these records, and I heard Love is a Dream, and I thought that would be perfect. And Jan and Phil were the most lovely 1940s-type people that I could see. Mm. Yes. And that's one of the highest-rated uh, for Silent Live fans, uh, Phil and Jan Sketch. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. It was in both of their best-ofs. There was a there was a sketch where John Belushi played Pablo Picasso. Oh yeah, oh yeah. No, wait, Picasso, the New York years. Yes. That was me. I knew it. I knew that. I got one right. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Uh, and Phil Hartman was Frank Nelson. Who's no? No. That was that, that was the early seasons that. Was it? Well, I don't. Now I'm all confused. I'm sorry. The the, the guy who'd go so, Mrs. Ricardo. <laughs> oh him. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Where do you say he was? No, he was what? Uh, uh, Lovitz was in the restaurant, and the and the owner of the restaurant or the manager was Phil Hartman doing an impression of that guy. Oh right, right, right. He'd be good at that. So, Mr. Picasso. <laughs> So yeah, that was that was a funny sketch. I didn't. I mean, I first saw that I was ten. I didn't know who Pablo Picasso was. Did your parents let you stay up or what? Um, if I could make it, they okay. If I could make it, I would be allowed to because they knew most of the time I wouldn't make it. I see. But they would tape it. Oh really? That's pretty neat. Oh, so you grew up in a family that taped television shows. Yes. I see. No wonder you're so. Literate. I mean, TV literate. Yeah. I, I I'm I read too. Pardon me. I read also. Oh, the, oh, you do. Yeah. That's, that's a plus. <laughs> um, the Broadway story. Yes. Was four parts. Right. And when you watch the first two. It didn't make any sense because there was no third or fourth. They cut it. Right. They put... I don't know why. It was a bold thing to make a four-part series on, on that show. You know, because you never had a knew when it was going to air. But it was really a lot of fun to make it. I used a Super 8 camera and then changed it to black and white and it looked grainy in 1930s. Mm. So <clears throat> I love doing that. Oh, and by then I had had a little area behind Studio 8H called uh, Schiller Vision, which was a, dedicated for me to shoot movies in, which was really neat. Mm. And they made cut-down sets, which were like three-quarter size sets that I could use in there. It was really wonderful. Right, and they did show the third one in a repeat of the Demi Moore episode. I see. But they never showed the fourth one. Um, Dieter in Space. Yeah. So Mike Myers was a big fan of yours because he was a big fan of the original Saturday Night Live. 
And he's a big fan of German things. Mm-hmm. He, um, that was more a collaboration between Mike Myers and me. Right. And that was a lot of fun. And then we were fully in video. So you shot it on video and it looked like it was video. Mm. And I found this really good, weird stock footage of German air uh, rocket ship blasting off into space, which I loved. So that was a lot of fun. And you did uh, a really funny but kind of cringy uh, video, uh, Hooked on Sushi. Oh, yeah. With Tom Davis. This is one of my gruesome ones at where a guy goes in to eat sushi and he puts it into his mouth and he's hooked on a, or a fishing rod and he gets pulled over, chopped up, and served to the next customer. Right. That was fun. And then you said you were in, you were not only you were, were you in uh, the night Hanukkah Harry saved Christmas, but you were also in the night Hanukkah Harry saved Easter. I was. I, I only remember Christmas. Yeah, you were in that one as well. Mm-hmm. Um, then you did the Schiller Vision Christmas special. Oh, that. See, by then I was started to put myself in it more <laughs> because I feel my time was slipping away at that show yeah. so I decided to just go full out and put myself in it but this was a 1950s or 1940s Christmas spectacular you know with stuff like Earl Ives and, and Chick Razors and so that was fun to recreate that look do you know how things get stuck in your head and you like songs or even like commercial jingles and, and you never can get them out Right, but I always re- probably to the rest of my life remember man bras for the brawny brawny man. You will, thank you. I wrote that. Yeah, I know. That was way before the Manzier. Right. Seinfeld, way before. Right. But but that that was fun to write that and play it on a piano at home and record it and lay it into the track. Yeah, it stuck in my head ever since I uh, ever since I saw it. Thank you. It's one of my greatest works. And the uh, real hairy yarmulkes. Oh, yeah. The, the Klinger human hair yarmulke. That was also one of my favorites. It's such an easy idea. I mean, I wondered why no one ever thought of it before. Mm. To make a toupee out of a yarmulke. Yeah. Because I've noticed that Jewish people get bald in that area. In the back? Yeah. Your head? Yeah. It's some classic form of baldness, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and then the 18th, uh, I'm sorry, I forgot, hidden camera commercials. Oh, yeah. This has become one of my most famous. For yes. Reasons I don't understand. But first of all, I loved Farley. He was mm. terrific, a very sweet guy, and he could do wonderful ramps. You go, go crazy, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I decided to use that quality in the hidden camera. And I always remember, so I saw these uh, Maxwell House commercials or Folgers, whatever it was. And the guy said, you're, you know, you're not drinking regular coffee. You're drinking Folgers crystals. And I thought, well, wouldn't the guy be pissed off? <laughs> where, where was the outtakes of people who just got angry at that? So I made one. Yeah. Very, uh, 
Very famous. And then it turned into a meme, which I didn't know what a meme was till I heard about this, of his expression changing from placid to angry. Yeah. And then he says, um, and you ask him, how does he feel now? And he goes, very angry. <laughs> That's right. That's His right. take is great. Yeah, he's good. And you are Knorbin Knusen. That's right, Knorbin Knusen, which I don't know how I got that name. But you'll notice he doesn't speak with a Swedish accent. He speaks with an English, British mm. accent, because in Sweden they do speak with British accents in English. Right. This fabulous point that I think your listeners will treasure <laughs> take with them for years to come. Well, I always wondered why in World War II the Germans always just spoke English with a German accent. That's because of the box office. No, I know the reason, but it's just like, well, is that why we, we defeated them? Because they were telling us their plans, but just with an accent? <laughs> yeah, right. I know. It doesn't make sense. And the last one I'm going to talk about is a guy who I think could have been a really good actor if he wanted to was Norm MacDonald. Yes, he, he was a special person. Very strange and wonderful. And uh, he, I don't know, he, he's a sweet guy and the most piercing blue eyes you've ever seen. And uh, yeah, I think he could be a great actor now. Doesn't he have a TV show or something? He had a Netflix um, interview show, mm -hmm. but he had a sitcom in the 90s. Oh, yeah, right. But he was really good in World War for Food. You're, you're... Yes. And Milos Forman put him in two movies. Oh, really? He was in, um, he was in um, The Man on the Moon. He played Michael Richards. Uh-huh. And he was in... Woody Harrelson, where he's the, the guy from Penta, uh, not, not Penta, uh, Hustler. Uh-huh. What's his name? I don't know. Oh, Larry, People versus Larry Flint. Oh, right, right. Uh-huh. He was the, uh, the lawyer for, he was the lawyer against Larry Flint. It was a straight, straight role. It was, he was good in it. I see. He, he has a depth to him. He has a, a melancholy part of him, too. And then you did um, 2013 Snow Fleas. Oh, that. Those are side jobs that are for silly, for fun. Mm. You do a lot of commercials. Over... I like to admit. But aren't, you see them as 30, 30 second movies. That's correct. That's what's good about them. Right. They, they're fast. Instead of making long features, which take years and often don't see the light of day, or get bad reviews, you can make a 30-second commercial, and you're over with it in about a week or two. And you've won a Clio, correct? I don't think a Clio. A, a I won a, a lot of advertising awards. Mm. I forget their name. The Golden Lion from Cannes. Though so I did go to Cannes with my commercial. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, it's good. They make great doorstops. Ha, ha, ha. I mean, you have two Emmys, or three Emmys. Yes, I have three Emmys. I forgot. <laughs> I wish I could forget that. <laughs> no, that's pretty good.
What's funny is you won the you won in seventy six and seventy seven, and then your father won in seventy eight. That's correct. Um, the first time we were nominated <clears throat> was that the first year or the second year? First year. I asked if we were going to get flown to L.A. and <clears throat> I went to David Tebbett, who was the vice president of NBC, mm-hmm. and I said, "Dave, are you going to fly us out to NBC, uh, out to L.A. for our Emmys?" And he said, "Talk to Lauren." <laughs> <laughs> we did win, and we didn't get flown out. But the one after that, we did get flown out, and we did win. And then you won it again in 1993, I think, right? Yes, that was for something else, like a special or something. Oh, probably the 1992 election special. Maybe. Yeah, it's good to have three Emmys. Yeah. And I'd like to thank um, Walter Williams. For... Good man. Oh, by the way, it, when Mr. Bill started coming on, a little after I'd done Schiller's Reel, and I would tell people, I, I do the short films on Saturday Night Live. And they said, oh, Mr. Bill? Right. <laughs> I was like, I would wither. But despite that, he's a wonderful guy, a very good-hearted man. And it was, it, that was a great show. And he gave me your email address. So I'd like to thank him. Yes, thank you. Now, I like the thing you have on your email, by the way, that it's like you have to get through a, a gate to get into your email. Oh, yeah, that's something, some spam cut thing because of Earthlink as an ancient uh, email guide or something like that. It's weird, but I kind of like it. Hmm. So what do you have? Do you have anything to plug? Do you have anything that you're working on right now? Well, basically just getting through this interview. Thank you. And uh, not much. I relish doing nothing. I've been in a couple of short movies and funny movies and stuff like that. But when I was about 10 or something, I would just like to go and sit somewhere and just daydream. Mm. And now I can still do it, which is a real treat. So I don't miss the slavery of having to come up with ideas. It's not slavery, it's a pleasure sometimes, but you know what I mean. No, I know what you mean. I always wondered that about, like, Bob Hope. And I'd be like, yeah. when's he going to sit, I mean, not that everyone has to retire, but it's like, when's he going to just sit there and stare at trees? Well, certain people's temperaments are like that. They have to keep working, and it, it seems natural for them. Right. But I'm glad I don't. Mm. Oh, one other question. Um, I'm going to take a guess on the sketch. I don't, maybe you were, maybe you didn't. When Jerry Seinfeld hosted the Elijah the Prophet sketch. Oh, no, I don't remember it. Oh, okay. Elijah shows up during the Seder. Oh, yeah. And he, and he basically comments about all the people there. Like, you know, the, the, um, there's more salt in your matzo ball soup than was in the Dead Sea. Okay, because usually anything with Jewish... If Alan Zoy Bell wasn't there and there was something Jewish... Yes. yes. I can write non-Jewish. No, I know you can. It's just... It's... You know, when you're up there and you're like in the 
um, when you're in the Bill Murray sketch and you're playing a rabbi. Yeah. It's very natural. I don't know where I got it. Mm. Yeah, you, um, Go ahead. We, we raised religiously? Pardon me? Were you raised very religious? No, not at all. Hmm. I'm glad. Because yeah. I can do impressions of the people who were, like, would be in the synagogue and have to give, like, like the women that were in the groups that, oh, Lord, you know, that the way they would come up and they'd read, a, read something or read. But, yeah, yours is just a creation. I don't, yes, it is. I, I guess from watching those old TV shows and reading Mad Magazine mm. and uh, Humbug Magazine and Simk Magazine, mm. I used to love to do voices. Right. Of course, you don't do voices from reading magazines, but it's more like TV shows. Right. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Schiller. I'm sorry if I put you through uh, too much. Not at all. Okay. It's a pleasure. Oh, and uh, I wish you much luck with this and your uh, all of your uh, other works, too. Yeah, I'm a New York City school teacher. Great. Yes. All right. All right, man. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Take care. You too.